What do you do on Sundays? We talk about Kate Blanchett, the acting, the costumes, the awards, but mostly the Blanchett of it all. Oh, oh I'm not acting. <laughs> you think this is a love affair? I saw you, Erica, meeting in the middle. This is Sundays with Kate, and I'm your host, Murtada El Fadl. Welcome to Sundays with Kate. I'm Murtada El Fadl, your host. In this episode, we continue recapping and reviewing Mrs. America, the TV miniseries about the fight to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1970s. The series is created by Davi Waller, and the reason we're here is that it stars Kate Blanchett, who plays Phyllis Schlafly, the right-wing polarizing organizer. I am not against women working outside the home, but what I am against is a small elitist group of Northeastern establishment liberals putting down homemakers. If we're going to catch up with the livers, we're going to need to grow fast. And my name gives us instant political recognition. It's Mrs. Schlafly. I'm married. The ERA is not about uh, equality. It's about power. And before you know it, we are living in a feminist totalitarian nightmare. Stop it. You're just trying to make me emotional. Thank you for having me on your show. This week, we will tackle episodes six and seven. And later on, on the show, I will have an interview with Bria Simone Henderson, who plays activist Margaret Sloan on the show. But first, I want to welcome back Andy Stewart, who previously joined me to discuss Oscar and Lucinda. Hi, Andy. Hello. Welcome back to Sundays with Kate. Thanks for having me back. Very excited to have you to talk about Miss America, because since the show started, you and I have been texting about it basically every Wednesday. So we're going to put a ribbon on it, try to talk about all the texts and all the things that we talked about. But first of all, tell our listeners your impression on the show. Are you enjoying it? How are you feeling about the show so far? Seven episodes in. Well, I'm definitely enjoying it. I'm glad that it came out when it did. Something to look forward to on Wednesdays. And it's about a subject matter that I really didn't know anything about. I had like heard some of the names, obviously, but I didn't, I I wasn't familiar with um, them trying to get rid of the ERA or Phyllis Schlafly or like I had heard her name before, but I didn't really know anything about them enough that I would be like, oh, that sounds interesting that they should make a show about it. So I'm really, I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, I think one of the things that I'm enjoying about the show is that every week I'm learning about somebody new and every week I'm like looking at, I'm Googling names and pictures, you know, there's the fun part of it. Do they look like the real person or not? Especially yeah. like this week with Jill Ruckel's house, who's played by Elizabeth Banks. She's somebody who's not famous. Like I've never heard of her until on this no. show. Like, She's not a Gloria Steinem or even a Phyllis Schlafly. So that's fun. But the other fun is also just trying to read about these people. Like I'm going to, I have an interview with Margaret Sloan coming in later, who's somebody I I haven't heard of before this show. But as I read about her, she's somebody we should know about. Yeah. In the history of the feminist movement, she's somebody who was a lesbian and a black woman. So she was, was an activist for LGBTQ rights, for women rights and for black rights. So, you know, there's a lot of interesting things with the show. Shall we dive in into Jill? Sure. So episode six is Jill and it's about Jill Ruckel's house played by Elizabeth Banks, like I said. So this is, um, takes place in 1976 when Gerald Ford is now president. And so the Republicans are in power, but of course, he is not conservative enough for Phyllis. So she's still going on her crusade against the ERA. And so that puts her in crosshairs with Jill, who's been appointed by Ford to lead this commission for women rights. And Betty Ford is one of her supporters to ratify the ERA. What did you think of this episode? So you had asked me before the episodes had aired if I would um, do these ones with you. So I was like, I did, I hadn't known anything about Jill going into it. And I have to say, I did like it, but it was probably my least favorite episode of the season, just because I felt like it was very heavy handed. It was like lots of metaphors and lots of like religious things that like other episodes didn't have. And it kind of like hit you over the head with all of them. And also I think 
something that I really didn't like was Elizabeth Banks. We hadn't really seen her character all that much through the other episodes. But then when we focused on her in this episode, I found that her acting was a little, it felt false to me. Kate is playing a character that like has this facade and is a little bit of a phony, but that's what the character is. It's not the actress portraying that. And with Elizabeth Banks with me, it felt a little like she was acting. And so everything that was coming across a little phony not like as a character, but as the actress trying mm. to play a character. I have to say this, this series has amazing acting. Like everybody's great. And when you sort of put Elizabeth Banks against these other people, she is the one who sort of like, I was fine with her, but she's not some, she wasn't as memorable as Margot Martindale or as Udu Adubo or Rose Byrne, who are just doing amazing work in the show. Yeah. And one of the things that I sort of struggled with with this episode also is this is, you know, we know Phyllis is a terrible person and we know she's kind of going to win in the end or she's going to win some things, definitely, because the ERA still hasn't been ratified. And this is the episode where her evil starts to come out really like just hits the extreme and she starts winning and she starts doing all these things that. um, So I wasn't having a good time watching the episode because also the show does these parallels between what happened in the 70s and what's happening today and it's one of the things that are that make the show interesting but it's also one of the things that make the show maybe just not a pleasant sit because you're always watching the second wave feminists lose to Phyllis because they don't make the right decisions because they um, like in this episode what it's dealing with is that it's showing that the Republican Party of the 70s is not the Republican Party of today. And so it's showing us Phil Phil is going to extreme. She's going to the evangelicals. She is going to the people who want to bring down Roe versus Wade and and going extreme right. And that what happened to Republican Party. And so you're watching that and you're just like, this is our reality now. And I guess this is when it all started. Yeah. Like the stepping stones of where we are now. Yeah. Let's talk about Elizabeth Bank a little more. What did you think of her scene with Kate? So for the last three episodes, there was sort of a debate. There was a debate between Phyllis and Betty Friedan. There was the debate between Phyllis and uh, Brenda Fagan-Fasto and their husbands. But in this episode, there wasn't a debate, but there was sort of a showdown big scene that we were leading up to from the beginning of Phyllis versus Jill. One of the things that happened before is that there was a sexual harassment scandal in the Capitol. One of the congressmen, Wayne Hayes, was caught basically pay, using government money to pay somebody who worked for him, but she really wasn't working for him as a, as a clerk. She was just there as his mistress. So, yeah. and Bella and Shirley Chisholm are trying, yeah, Shirley Chisholm is trying to help the secretaries in the capital who have been dealing with sexual harassment and Bella's there and Bella as usual is trying to balance all the things and not trying to like ruffle too many feathers. But Jill is also aware of what's happening and Jill is saying when, when she hears about this, she tells Shirley and Bella about how she's, she takes it for the movement. Basically she lets men like touch her. She smiles. She lets them belittle her a little to get her way. So when she meets with Phyllis, it becomes about that subject in that she brings up these secretaries, you know, these women who work for congressmen. And of course, Phyllis is just completely dismissive um, because she says, you know, women um, like this invite these advances, basically. But I found this... A virtuous woman would have no need to fear that that would happen to her, which apparently is something that Phyllis Schlafly actually said in a speech. Mm-hmm. So what I like that the, the, um, that the show is doing is that we don't know what the conversations, like private conversations are between these real people, but what they've done is like taken actual things that they've said and like put it in the context of being within their life. Do you know what I had to do to get my commission funded? I had to let more than a dozen congressmen put a hand on my arm, my hip, my backside. And that is nothing compared to what those secretaries on the Hill are dealing with on a daily basis. 
But don't you think those kind of women are really just inviting it? Well, virtuous women are rarely accosted by unwelcome sexual propositions. Let me tell you something about those kind of women, Phyllis. They could be me. They could be you. They're just trying to get a fair shake. They want to go to work, get paid, go home. They're not asking to be harassed, manhandled, degraded, assaulted. You're so angry. Well, with only one state ratified in over two years, even with White House support and the $5 million check from Congress, it must be terribly frustrating for you. You want to get ahead, climbing on the shoulders of men, Phyllis? Fine. Just know, they're looking right up your skirt. So that scene was was good, and it's a showdown, but I didn't know what, why Jill wanted to meet her. Because Phyllis, yes, she said that that is a direct quote from her, but I felt the writing, which is usually so smart in sort of balancing all these agendas together, I felt them meeting was contrived because why did she want to meet her? Yeah. She wasn't debating her. She didn't really want anything from her. She wanted her to back off, but she doesn't even talk to her about backing off. She just talks to her about what's happening on the Hill and about what's happening to these women. And so I found the scene a little lacking despite the fact that I enjoyed the performances. You're right. I didn't really buy that they were like having this conversation and it really did feel like it was supposed to be a showcase for Elizabeth Banks to play off of Kate Blanchett. But again, she doesn't, she doesn't have the, she's not a, playing at the same level that Kate is playing. I don't think. And I feel like since Kate has had so many episodes and like is able, because over the course of the series, she's really gotten into the character. Like yeah. the episode with Ari Gaynor, like, she was just on fire. Like she knew that character so well and she was like committing to it more than she had because maybe she had like gotten used to playing it so much. But I think that Elizabeth Banks is Jill. I remember her in the first episode. She has like a couple lines here or there. So it's not like she's had the chance to develop it the way that Kate has. So it kind of comes off as Elizabeth Banks. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I wanted... Really, I wanted more oomph from her. She's against a formidable person. And in the end, when she when she says that line, which is a great line, you know, you wanna you wanna climb on the shoulders of men, just know that they're looking up your skirt. And she lowers her voice and the line kind of to me loses its oomph a little bit in her delivery. But I think my main problem with that scene is I didn't understand what they what was the purpose of it. A moment in this episode, the, my favorite moment in this episode is when Jill, Bella, and Shirley go to meet. Rep Hayes to talk about women and they talk about equality. And he's like, um, so you guys will not rest until there is e- the equality in pay is 100%. And all three just say yes at the yes. same time. Yeah. <laughs> Why is it such a hard concept for them to understand? <laughs> right? Equal work for equal pay. <laughs> and, you know, people are still talking about it. Another funny moment, and this is, you know, Sarah Paulson, who we haven't seen too much of, but I think next episode is her, when she goes with with Melanie Linsky and with Kate to meet the evangelical women. And the women's organization is called Women Who Want to Be Women. And www, like all the W's. Yeah, they're like old seven W's for short. And she's like, is that shorter? Yeah. <laughs> I think it, the episode of Jill is is fine. It's kind of a little dip. Has, do you think it's been your least favorite as well so far in the series? Yeah, I think so. I think there weren't as many high highs in it as I as there were in the other series. Like there is usually is something like that's so memorable that you can't forget. And maybe the scene that sticks with me from this is the. Um, are two scenes and they're both all about Kate. So when she goes and meets the evangelical woman and they go, you know, hunt a deer and then she goes to confession after because obviously the evangelical called, you know, homosexuals, perverts. She has that gay son. (laughs) She does in confession call her son a pervert. I know. (laughs) I mean, you know, I don't want to, this episode was directed 
by Lord de Clermont-Tonnerre, who directed the movie The Mustang. You know what? She's a, she, I loved her movie The Mustang, and I'm, this is not a dig on her at all. But in that confession scene, it was very dark. I mean, a confession room is dark. So I wish the lighting was better so we could see what was happening on Kate's face. But it's fine. Kate has given us so many faces in this show so far. <laughs> so I personally didn't like that confession scene. That scene and the scene with Lottie Beth when she takes the rose and is like, this is the unborn children. <laughs> She's just like, I'm like, okay, calm down. That's a, it's like, it was too much. And so, and there was so much religious things in this episode that like they haven't really touched on in other episodes that I felt like it just was really heavy handed and came out of nowhere. So her, so this, the confession scene for Kate, while it's a great actor showcase, it felt very like indulgent. Mm. But don't you think they're bringing up all these religious themes now, because this is the episode where Phyllis reaches out to the evangelical. So it fits where they are in the story. Something that I don't love about this series is that it's trying to address so much. And like, that's great that it's, trying to take tackle on all of these things but i feel like a lot of the issues and a lot of the things that it's trying to do because it's trying to take on everything is they're very surfacey so it's very like oh we'll talk about religion now but then there's not enough time for them to like get in depth about it so it's just like okay here's a brief thing that we're going to touch on with religion now let's move on to the next thing i kind of feel like the earlier episodes were a little like that when um, they would talk about race, like the episode with the, um, the woman that was, that was pretty much racist. And then also with Margaret Sloan, I felt like there was all these kernels of like ideas that they wanted to talk about, but then they never really explored them enough. But I mean, there's a lot going on, so it makes mm. sense that they don't have time to explore all these things. But I just wish that maybe they were handled in a better way. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I actually talked to Bria about that, about how she managed to find her way through the character through just, you know, I think she has about four or five scenes in the three episodes she's in. So yeah. if you are curious, stay tuned. <laughs> The other scene that I really liked is the end scene. It's like, you know, Phyllis take, they go to the, to the 1976 Republican convention. They take the RA there, the Republican party, they lose basically. They, they're still part of the Republican party's platform, but Phyllis wins in that she is asked to the strategy room of Ronald Reagan. And so she goes there and the, the show always does these parallels. So the callback is to, Elizabeth Banks telling her all these men are looking up your skirt. So she goes there. She's in the room that happens, basically. But all these men are treating her. They're making crude jokes about women. Every one of them is putting their hand on her shoulder, on her backside. She doesn't drink. They give her a scotch and then they berate her to drink it. And so she has one and she's in the room, but at what cost? And so I kind of like that scene, especially it ends with the song, You Don't Know Me. What did you think? Um, so I just rewatched it because I couldn't remember what happened. You had text or someone had written, oh, that last shot the, the, of Phyllis, of Cadis Phyllis in the last scene. And I was like, what happened? Um, but then I rewatched it. I was like, oh yeah, that was really good. Like the way she like downs that scotch and like everyone is like pawing at her like the whole time too. Mm-hmm. She is trying to get her point across but obviously these men are not listening to her in the way that they want and one of reagan's people actually like looks her in the face and says like you're gonna drop this and her reaction is just to smile and nod because there's not much else she can do about it and that's when um james marsden is like you haven't touched your scotch and like the look the look on her face of like disgust but trying to hide it and then like that swallow of the scotch it's like we'll get through this (laughs) i mean she does she's always these reaction faces that she has there's so many in every episode and in in this episode that was the one that whole scene because the camera is is goes from wide shot to mid shot to just close up 
Um, so it's a long scene and that's how it goes. And then you have just her face on screen. And then she's she just gives it, lets us know what's going on. Yeah. So shall we move on to episode seven, Bella? Sure. This episode is directed by Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck, who directed also the first two episodes, and it is written by Mika Schraft. And so in this episode, it's about the National Women's Conference or about the preparation for the National Women's Conference, which happened in 1977. Bella lost her bid for Senate. And so she's back in New York, back with her husband. And so Midge, who is one of the minor characters who appeared before, uh, was her secretary or her assistant, comes to tell her that now that she works for Carter in the White House, they have appointed her to chair this committee that's going to run the National Women's Conference, which is a conference for women from all over America coming from states. They get elected at the state level to then come and discuss issues and come up with, with with a platform for laws, basically. So it's like a convention, but it's only for women and it is bipartisan. So it's not Republican or Democrat. Mm-hmm. I love this episode. I thought I it was... Too. I thought it was one of the greatest episodes. First of all, every epi- almost every episode starts with Kate. So, and this was one of the best intros of an episode ever because it was the pie throwing scene, which is Phyllis, oh, yeah. is, <laughs> Phyllis is giving a speech at a Republican press club or something like that. And, you know, she's going all about the ERA. And, and, and this actually happened. And a protester who disguised himself as a waiter came in and threw a pie in her face. It was very funny the way it was staged. It was great, the pie in her face. And then the Ramones coming to the soundtrack <laughs> and everybody's like moving in slow motion. It's great. Yeah, it was really great, especially because it like catches you off guard because she's given her speech and she's like at the table, like talking to her daughter and um, Sarah Paulson's character. And they're just like having a conversation. And then all of a sudden there's a pie in her face. (laughs) And apparently that the real person, because there's lots of articles that say like all over the internet that are like, how true is each episode to like what happened in real life? And so that man, he, actually like that was his like protest was putting pies into famous people's faces that he opposed but apparently he used an apple pie with Phyllis Schlafly and not a cream pie because Uh, he wanted it to be like all American and be like this is America bitch (laughs) yeah but but I guess apple pie doesn't register well on no definitely not well, and then she has her line. She's like, good thing it wasn't cherry, it was stain. Yeah, it's a great scene. And to give that guy props, his name is Aaron Kay. And he has thrown pies at many people, from right-wing journalists to CIA chiefs to anti-abortion protesters to even Andy Warhol. So he has had a good run in the 70s. So what did Andy Warhol do that he got a pie in the face? He's like, that's not art. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> like I said, the series does these parallels of between Phyllis and the other person who's the main character in each episode. So this is Phyllis and Bella. So the parallel here is that they're both trying to hold on to their power. So Bella is appointed to run this National Women's Conference, and she runs into a lot of problems, all of them caused by Phyllis and her people. And so she's trying to hold on to her power. But also what Bella is afraid of here is, and what makes her change her mind about all the things that she was compromising on, including gay rights and the platform for lesbian women and inviting the, the as she calls them, the antis, which is Phyllis's people, is that she's afraid that people don't think of her as a radical anymore. So she goes to talk to Betty Friedan and, and she's like, are you not mad that you people don't think of you as a radical? And Betty's like, no, this is mainstream now. This is good. But in another conversation with Gloria, she feels this thing and she wants to be that young person who went to the South to fight for civil rights and to, to be called a radical. So she changes by the end 
of the episode. And this is sort of her way of how to hold on to her power. Phyllis is also trying to hold on her power. She's in the inner circle with Ron, um, but also she's trying to expand her mailing list to get before the 1980 election so that she can really be in the room with Ron. So this is what she's going to offer to Ronald Reagan, this mailing list. And this is why she gets in bed with the evangelicals. And by the end of the episode, even the Ku Klux Klan. So she's gone very dark. And it feels like Phyllis is really unraveling in this episode too. Like she has an unexplained fever like she keeps sweating through her clothes like she's it, that menopause well she said uh with jean triple horn that it wasn't she, she's very short with her too it was kind of like an unexplained illness other than i just feel like maybe it was just to show how she is like like the pressure is getting to her and she's she's not really able to cope because like she says she's she's a winner so if she's not winning, it's like taking a toll on her. Yeah. And she's also, uh, you know, in her family, her daughter, Phyllis Schlafly Jr. changed her name to Liza. So that's another thing where, you know, they show us, you know, how vulnerable Phyllis can be. I mean, do you think that the gay brother was like, how about Liza? <laughs> it could have come in for the gay brother. But like knowing what I know about Joan Schlafly, just I have read up on him after he came up. He was completely... Yeah. Mother, mother's camp he is like he's defending her up until today so he's somebody as awful as his mother so i don't think he he would have the humor to come up with the liza name so he still defends his mother mm-hmm. and he he basically um went to law school and then worked with her in her organization until and i oh. think he's one of the people who run it now a performance I really loved in this episode, and this is somebody I love, Melanie Linsky. Her, yes. Her role is not so big, but she's always so delightful when she comes in. She's playing this over-eager um, Phyllis acolyte, and it's yes. always funny. I love how she's always volunteering herself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because Phyllis does it, but she does it in a more way, in a sly way that people think that like, oh, I guess... We did choose her, but like Rosemary's so obvious about it. She's like, all right, I'll do it. Thanks, everyone. And everyone's like, huh? What? <laughs> She's delightful. Um, I love her. What did you think of Margot Martindale? I thought she was great in this episode. And actually, my favorite scene was when they're in Illinois and Phyllis doesn't show. And so down in the basement, right before uh, Bella's supposed to go on to give a speech, she actually meets up with Melanie Linsky and Sarah Paulson. You don't know what's going to happen in that scene. You, this is like a dynamic we've never seen before. And actually, when she, when um, Bella comes into the scene and says, hello, I'm Bella, I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. These characters haven't met before. Like, we've been with them for all of these episodes. So, like, we know all of them. But this is the first time that they've actually interacted with each other. And I love how she turns the tables on them when they're talking about, we just want to be women. We want to be mothers. That's what our job is. We don't want to be Homemakers. Yeah, right? And she's like, we we don't want to be working girls. And she's like, well, has Phyllis taught you how to do all of these things? Basically running a business. And she's like, and they're so offended because they're like, of course, we're an organization. And she's like, congratulations, you're working girls. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good, great scene. And everybody in it is just playing it to the hilt. Sarah, Melanie, Kaylee Carter, and of course, Margot. She's great. Yeah. Did you know Margot Martindale is from Texas? I didn't. But Bella Abzug is from New York and she has that Bronx accent. And I think Margot did it great. It was, it, it's so pronounced in some scenes because, you know, they're more emotional. But throughout, I thought she was great. We are here today because he fought for party reform. When I graduated from law school, my mother said to me, wear a hat and gloves. That way they won't mistake you for a secretary. Oh, when did the gloves come off? And how many hats do we think she had in this episode? (laughs) So many. And 
Margot is amazing. I really loved her in this um, in this episode, and just throughout, she's been great. And you know, because Bella is this woman who is you know loud and sort of obnoxious, and the yeah. show sort of shows you that she's always apologizing to her assistants or firing them or buying them a gift because she threw an ashtray at them. And also, she's somebody <laughs> who is politically savvy. She's willing to compromise, like she did with George McGovern, like she was trying to do in this episode. Martindale plays all that, but also in this episode, like my favorite scene for her was at the end where she's leaving Betty Friedan's apartment and where she is, you know, somebody who is older. She is trying to, she's thinking of her legacy. She's thinking of her life. She says there is so much more to do. And it's a very quiet scene. She's just going out of the apartment building and she's hailing a cab. But you feel the weight of all those things that she's been dealing with and thinking about as she raises her hand to hail a cab and, you know, we get close to her face. And I was like, wow, Margot, that's amazing close up. I really loved the scene that she had with um, Gloria, where we get a little of her history. And like why she wants to keep being seen as a radical. And now, yeah, and so she feels like she's lost that as she's gotten older. And, and just telling um, Gloria her history about being a lawyer down in the South and getting death threats and having to hide from the Ku Klux Klan. I just thought she played that scene so well. Could see there was like layers of trying to do the right thing and then the ulti- ultimately how disappointed and hurt she felt because she ultimately left before the the trial so she never actually finished getting this man off yeah so she finishes this time she gets a redo and she finishes she lets into the platform the lgbtq rights question and this is she's doing it to her former assistant who you know, she, she says it, I have to do right by Midge. And so that's her way of like, I'm a radical. Because of course, Betty Friedan is known for her anti-lesbian stand. And, and Bella Abzag is, is not, you know, anti, but she's also somebody who's always wants to compromise. And she just thinks that that's maybe not her fight. But in the end, she recognizes that the fight might, might be not personal to her, but it is personal to people who mean a lot to her that are looking to her for mm-hmm. guidance and leadership. And so the show, even though the show is, is mainly about these um, f- on the left about the white feminist movement, but it does, you know, it showed us a little bit from the black movement in the fourth episode and this, and there is always a queer element or a queer character in a lot of the episodes. So we've seen, you know, Phyllis's son, we've seen Margaret Sloan, who's also queer. And in this episode, there's a Mitch character and her girlfriend. And, you know, we, they show you, it was very poignant to see her going to an official White House party, but she can't take her girlfriend. So she's kind of borrows her gay friend's boyfriend. And so, and then she, in another scene, she's like, I can't hold Jean's hand in public. I'm afraid to. So the show, it's not the center story, but I appreciated that in this episode. That was one of the main themes. Again, it, it tries to, it takes on all of these different issues and things throughout all of the different episodes. I feel like it was handled well in this one more. I felt like there was enough of it that we got. Every episode is very well crafted and it all works together as a cohesive story and each person gets their moment to shine. I I think it's really well done. And, but it's also entertaining. It's not, it doesn't feel like a history lesson. No, it doesn't feel like a history lesson at all, because I think this is where the actors come in because they are playing real life people, but they're also giving the audience something to latch onto. So there is always high emotions. There's always drama and, you know, there is inherent drama in the writing, but I think the actress elevated. And so you're always watching, trying to see what are they going to do next? And to not be really familiar with the history of it, too, it does feel like it's unfolding before me as I'm watching it. I feel like this episode, too, with Bella is like Phyllis is off the deep end, too. Like she has like a crazy look in her eyes the whole episode. And then like when she's splicing together the speeches and... Sarah Paulson is like, um, 
they didn't say that. And she's like, it's their words. So they said it. Yeah. So Phyllis is, like we said, she's going to some dark places. It's not just a Ku Klux Klan. Now she is doctoring tapes to basically try to win at any cost. And this is something that's now also, this is part of Phyllis Schlafly's legacy to politics. Came out of their mouth, no matter the context. So she uses it against them and splashes quotes together And now this is like just everyday happening in in politics all the time. I also love in um, callback to the scene where Bella meets up with uh, Melanie Linsky and Sarah Paulson, where she's like, can I see your sign? And it says, go home, Bella. And she's like, so you guys weren't going for creative, I guess. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) The show does this commentary on the ego forum all the time in that, yes, they are trying to empathize with them and, you know, humanize them because they were human. But also they were always giving these comment, little commentaries about, you know what, they're not that creative. They were not that smart. <laughs> and so yeah. whenever there is a, a moment like that, I love it. I'm just like, yes, yes, thank you. But I think they did a really good job with casting, with casting people that we already love as actresses so that we're not necessarily, so we still have like a little bit of, um, empathy for them or like we're still rooting for them a little bit like how can you root against kate and sarah paulson like you can't i mean after what phyllis did in this last episode i'm gonna root against her i'm rooting (laughs) full force against her (laughs) but i'm still enjoying her give me more close-ups give me more phyllis going down the deep end i'm loving it but i'm definitely not rooting for her oh something i have to say about the close-ups you can always see her lace front and it really bothers me. Yeah, because you can see the line on Kate's forehead like all the time. And I was like, can't they do a better job of hiding that it's a wig? I mean, maybe Phyllis Schlafly never admitted to wearing a wig, but the show is trying to tell us, you know what? She did wear a wig. Another sly comment from them. Let's talk awards for a little bit. So this show is definitely going to be a shoe-in for the Emmys, and you are somebody who follows awards. So Kate is the only one who's going to be in Best Actress, so she's she's going to get that nomination. But all these yeah. other women are going to be in the same category in Best Supporting Actress. Who do you think will get nominated, and who would you want to get nominated? Uzo Adoba is probably the biggest person to get into a supporting role just because I think that her episode was a really big showcase for her. And I felt like a lot of people after seeing that episode was like, why has there not been like a biopic about Shirley Chisholm? Like it's such a fascinating story that only a certain amount of people really know. She's such an interesting character and she like was a pioneer and I think that um, Uzo did a great job in her episode. That was like the, it was the third episode, I think. And I think that one was like the best one at that point by far. Yeah, I agree. And when we talked about uh, the first three episodes, we did mention that that episode was definitely the strongest from the first. And yeah, I agree that Uzo Aduba will, it's probably the shoe in. And I think Margot is after seeing this episode. I really hope Ari Grainer, if she doesn't get an Emmy nomination, you know, awards are not the be all and end all. That's fine because she was great in her episode, but she's somebody who's not in many of the other episodes. But I loved her performance in the fifth episode. And I just hope that this show will open doors for her. Yeah, I thought that her episode was very good as well. But realistically, it could, the whole category could be filled with all of these women. Yeah, like if, if we do Margot Uzu, Rose, Tracy Ullman, Ari Grainer, and Sarah Paulson, that's six. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. They don't need any more. Coming up next is my interview with Bria Simone Henderson, who appeared on the show as activist and Ms. Magazine editor, Margaret Sloan. We talk about how she got the role, the table read with Kate Blanchett and the rest of the cast, and what she hopes audiences take away from watching the show. Andy, before you go, where can our listeners find you? Um, so I'm probably most active on Instagram, and my handle is abstew81. 
I also have started something fun while we've all been in quarantine. On Tuesdays, I'm doing trivia. Um, this past week was trivia for Pop Divas. I've also done Best Actress Oscars. So it's always going to be like entertainment related. It's never going to be, I'm never going to do like sports or anything. So if you want to come follow me and answer some fun questions on Tuesday nights. I've been really enjoying Andy's Tuesday trivia. I lost one that I was so sure I was going to win, which was something about Best Actress Oscars. But Andy's a great follow on Instagram and do the Tuesday trivias. Thank you so much, Andy, for coming on Sundays with Kate. And now for my interview with Bria Simone Henderson. As we recap Mrs. America, I'm very excited to have a cast member from the show who plays Margaret Sloan, Bria Simone Henderson. Hi, Bria. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. I can't complain. Just taking it day by day. You know, yeah. <laughs> we just got the the article that uh, L.A. County will probably be on shutdown till July now. So yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. the news for today. And we got on New York that Broadway will not open till September, which means probably nothing else. So that's coming oh too for us. That is it's insane. But whatever it takes to get us back to some level of normalcy is necessary. And so yeah. I will do my part. <laughs> but one of the things that I'm doing during this quarantine self-isolation is watching Mrs. Mrs. America. Yes. <laughs> and I'm very excited to talk to you. I'm a huge fan of your performances, Margaret Sloan. Oh, thank you so much. So first, how did the role come to you? Well, my agents, my reps, they sent me the breakdown. Um, and I just remember getting the first breakdown. They just asked for a self-tape. So I remember reading the sides and reading like the character breakdown and not making the connection that this is a real person because mm. the sides were kind of like uh, the sides were the characters on the sides were changed. So it was a scene that I had to do with Gloria, but in the sides, I think her name was Wendy. So there was no uh-huh. way I could know that this was going to be what it was. So I just used the best, you know, my best critical thinking skills and just, you know, my training as an actor to break down the scene to figure out who Margaret was, because I also didn't know that Margaret was real at, at the time of my first self, self tape. So I went and I remember it said 70s. So I was like, well, look, let me at least have a 70s gear on. Yeah. I remember walking to Ross in a, on a really, really hot day and getting like some bell bottom jeans and like this really like groovy top, like striped top. And put in my hair in like two puffs and went to my friend's house to do the self tape. <laughs> and then I submitted that and got a call back. So I actually went in and that's when I realized that Margaret was real because they didn't want me to wear makeup. So I was like, oh, that's specific, you know, like no makeup. Maybe I should Google this person. So I Googled her name and her face popped up and a, and a few articles about her popped up. And that's when I was able to make a more informed um, analysis of her to kind of bring her more to life. From what I got from research. Yeah. So, yeah. so then tell me about your research into Margaret Sloan, because I have to also say I didn't know about her. But the minute you appeared in that scene, I was like, I want to know more about this woman. So I was in a Wikipedia hole right after the episode yes. ended. I started reading about her. So tell me about your research. So I just started with Google. I just Googled her name. And, it, you know, you 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 can agree that when you see the articles, they all say the same thing. It's just like when she was born some of her accomplishments throughout her life, the National Black Feminist Organization, which is one of the biggest uh, things that she did. And then she died. And that's all you really get on every page that, you know, wrote about her. And so I remember like really like praying. I'm heavy in my face. So I was like, God, I need to find something deeper about this woman because I, I want to, you know, do my best to bring this woman to life, um, especially someone who's so unknown and so unsung. Mm-hmm. And so I remember I was home back in Richmond, Virginia. That's where I'm from, born and raised. And every time I go back home, I work um, at DMV just to get some extra money. <laughs> so I was in DMV, like trying to sort out mail for the office, but not really doing work and Googling her name to try to find some a gem, just a golden nugget. And I was able to look at um, Pacifica Radio Archives, which is a website that has a lot of recordings and videotapings back in the day of of like powerful leaders and politicians and organizers. And um, I was able to listen to Margaret Sloan and Gloria Steinem's speeches that they would do. They would tour college campuses and, and speak on sexism and racism and the politics over um, like women's bodies. And so I was able to hear her voice for the first time. So that helped inform me of just like who she was and how she kind of carried herself 
physically. And then I was able to go down an even deeper rabbit hole and I found a an interview she did, a live interview she did with, a, a, I think, a woman's show um, back in like 1977. So I was able to kind of just see how, you know, she lived in her body and it was great just watching her move, you know, see this real woman that I hadn't seen. Like I was researching her for like months and I was finally able to get that piece of negative. So I would always like before I would go and said I would watch a little bit of the um, the interview and listen to I downloaded some of her um, speeches where she, you know, uh, would recite some of her poetry just to hear her and like let that come into me and then let all of that go and just be honest and present in the moment uh, with, yeah. with the scenes that we filmed. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about how the costumes and the hair or wig <laughs> helped you get into the part? Oh my goodness. So after seeing pictures of her, um, the first step was to get wig fitting. So after I booked the part, like a few weeks later, costume the costumers and hair department were reaching out to me. And so this is my very first TV show ever. So I was just so excited, like, oh my gosh. So I went on like the Sony lot a few times to get wig fittings and I had to get like the plastic wrap over my head and that was really cool. And then I would come back and then like the wig was made and I just saw like this fro that that looked so natural. Like there was, the wigs were a big part of the show. Like wigs were very important for the show. And you can tell like the wigs really make a huge difference. And I would just remember trying on Margaret's wig for the first time. And I was just like, yo, I look like her. Like, her hairline is more like it's much farther down than mine. So if you can tell, like, I don't like, I have a huge forehead, but in the show, you, you get half of it because the hairline is so far down and the way they had to round it out. Like I'm a hair person, but I had no idea about TV hair and what, and how specific they have to be to really, you know, cause they're artists too. So they're interpreting the character just as yeah. I am as an actor, director, uh, cinematographer, all of that. So it was just great just to see how like they had to cut it, they had to shape it. It needs to be more round, rounder in this scene. As she gets older, it gets a little bit shorter, like and like the top gets a little bit heavier, almost like a mushroom. And so it was great just seeing the transformation of that. And then the costumes. Um, Bina, who um, the person who did the wig was Ann Morgan, who was in charge of all the hair. She's amazing. So shout out to her. Um, but Bina, uh, she was like our costume designer, and she. Mm-hmm was incredible. Like I got, uh, most of my clothes were built and made for me, tailor made for me. And that mm-hmm. just made me feel good, especially being a woman of size. Like, and I, you know, I've been acting for a while and more in the theater world heavy. And so I've been in multiple fittings. And I think mm-hmm. this is one of the few fittings that I felt like my body wasn't a problem. If, if something didn't work, the clothes were the po- problem and they had to fix it. And I hadn't, I didn't have to fix anything about me. And so that was lovely. But to put the costume on and the hair on and we were taking kind of like, you know, kind of like screener pictures just to get an idea of what it would look like. It, it's unreal. Like the, the transformation that happens because like my friends would call me and they say, I know it's you, but it doesn't look like you. But I know, it's <laughs> you know, and so yeah, they did a the, great job. Yeah, they did an amazing job. I mean. Phyllis's wig, Gloria Steinem's wig, Flo Kennedy's wig, Shirley Chisholm's wig. It's unreal. Like they did such a great job. Yeah. It's like one of the things that really stand out in the show is the authenticity of the hair and of the costumes for all the characters. A lot of lace fronts, (laughs) a lot of glue, a lot of conditioner, a lot of braiding. Every time I went to uh, Toronto to film, I had to, I always had to set up an appointment with the braider. The show did that for me. They brought on a braider, which mm-hmm. kudos to them. Another black woman who braided my natural hair down because I have actually thick hair. So a lot oh. of people were like, how did your hair fit under that wig? And I'm like, a lot of pain, <laughs> a lot of pulling and a lot of sewing. <laughs> well, the results were amazing. So yeah. I wanted to ask you about the rehearsal. So did you have any rehearsal period to get into Margaret and to work with the other actors and the directors and the showrunner? Yeah, uh, great question. I, and like I said before, I come from the theater world. And so in theater, the difference is that we work, we rehearse from like for three to four weeks before anyone sees it. We're rehearsing, we're figuring things out, we're playing with our uh, scene partners, we're trying to find a group together, we're figuring mm-hmm. out what doesn't work, like all of those things. And in TV, it's just much faster, it's quicker. So any rehearsal was like 30 minutes before filming. So I would get on set, I would get into hair, makeup, eat a breakfast, and then get on set, 
meet the director. And then like within five minutes, we're pulling our scripts out, reading the lines one time, maybe t- twice through. The director is giving us the idea of, of how it's going to move the blocking. And then like we'll do one little rehearsal and then it's like, okay, all right, first team out. Let's bring in all the cameras, bring all the lights and we're going to film it once they're done. And that's it. Like that's how quick the rehearsals were. I did, I was able to be uh, available and present in Canada Canada for the table read for episode four. So that was cool to just to read it out. And like, you know, of course the producers were the directors and the other cast members just to hear the flow of the show. But rehearsal time was very short. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But still you managed to create like chemistry with Rose Byrne as Gloria, with Nisi Nash as Flo. Like I love the scene of Sundays at Flo's. So can you talk about working with those actors? Yes. Um, they, I, I don't think I could have chosen two better um, actors that I've watched for years to, you know, be my first scene partners of the first TV show ever that I've been cast in. And uh, first we'll talk about uh, Rose Byrne, who is so easy. She's so easy. Um, there was no, like, there was just, there was nothing, there was no block in connecting with her. Um, you can tell that she's just there to work, build a story, and she's so fun and easy off camera too. Mm-hmm. And so it was easy building the story of Gloria and Margaret and the tension and the unspoken uh, and their relationship and how that you know blossom and how it, it keeps going. So I really enjoy just playing with her. It was like a nice little tennis match every time. And she was just so open and giving. And so I never felt like I was in the scene by myself. And I hope she didn't feel like she was either. I think we both felt what we were giving and we received and gave something back. And so that was, it was a beautiful sharing, very easy, um, easy spirit. And with Nisi, she is someone who just commands. She commands every space she's in and she has a light about her and she does not dim her light. And that's something that I really loved about her. She came in, she was very personable to everyone. She spoke to everyone in that house. Um, and, you know, she kind of was the captain of that scene, you know, she brought the energy we had to match her. We had to rise to her occasion and there was no ego about it. It was just, we're doing this thing and it was fun working with her. It was fun finding extra moments with her, playing with her. And I got to learn a lot from her and she's been very supportive, uh, you know, in my whole start in this, in this industry. And that means the world to me, especially being someone I have watched for years it's just unreal yeah. um yeah i mean after your scenes together uh, i hope that we would get a flo kennedy episode or a margaret sloan episode but i guess they were not as involved in the later years of the of the era um, they yeah and so a lot of people have said like oh i would really love to hear to get episodes with the more of the secondary characters because they do have stories um but the story was focused on phyllis schlafly you know and i'm grateful that they even gave space for the black women's voices in that movement and we got enough so you can kind of see what we were battling too but they were they were still active during all those times you know mm-hmm. yeah margaret leaves to go to oakland but she left to go to Oakland to 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 start other uh, a woman's movement and to keep doing the activism that she was doing um, in New York. Yeah. What I loved about your performance and about your scenes is the economy of your performance. So there there is a lot that is not said in your scenes with Gloria. You have an agenda. Gloria has a different agenda. The text of the show doesn't tell us all the things that are brewing underneath Margaret, but we see it in your face, in your performance. So can you talk a little bit about how taking those slides, that those scenes with Gloria and sort of building all these other things that become apparent in your performance, but are not in the text? Um, that's a great question. Well, just like you said before, I'm not in a lot of scenes. So it's that job where it's like, you know, other characters can, they don't have to show subtext because maybe in the next scene, they have time to say it. So if I only have this one scene about tokenism, that's it. Mm -hmm. And the writing does it so well of how she navigates the conversation and still trying to say what she feels without disrespecting her coworkers being at a new job. But the director of that episode, episode four, Ama Asante, who directed Belle, who was just amazing. We had that conversation about white feminism and and feminism and how black women feel. And, you know, she had to let me know, like you, at first I was putting so much like just 
oomph on it, you know? And she was like, I get that that's, that's what you innately want to do, but you are a woman of 20 of 2019. And this is a woman who, lived in the seventies. So it's a, just a lot more danger to come in like, Hey, I got something to say. And I, you know, this is my voice and I'm going to, and how does Margaret navigate it in a way? And Margaret was a very smart woman. So her words were enough, but I know that I had to play with something else internally to show that the, the nuances of what she was going through and what that, that scene was not just about her saying, Hey, I would love to write an article on tokenism. That scene was her saying, this is also how I feel. This is my experience. And I'm in a white, and I'm in a, like a white space that does not, that sees me, but does not understand me, nor is giving me space to be a black woman. You're just taking my womanness, but you're not taking my blackness. And there's the problem. There was a, dis- that was the disconnect between her and Gloria. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it shows congratulations to you because I think Margaret is not given a lot of scenes, but I understood and wanted to know more about her just based on your performance. I think thank it's great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and I'm glad you you brought up the tokenism scene because I know that was released as a clip before. Yes. And I didn't and- know they were going to do that. So when they released it as like a, a, a teaser, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> My mom saw it on TV. It played all the time. And I was just like, this is unreal. Yeah, it made me so excited. I'm like, oh, who is this? I want to know this actor. I would like to explore the idea of tokenism in the workplace, where one minority is propped up to cover the experience of an entire population. That's interesting. Wait, sorry. You're not saying you feel that way here. The show is about Phyllis Schlafly. It's about the women of the second wave feminism. What do you hope? As somebody, you know, as a woman in 2020, what do you hope audiences who are watching Mrs. America take away from it? Who? Um, I hope they learn something that they didn't know. A lot of these women, like I said, are unsung, are unknown, are washed under the rug of history. They're not in our history books, you know, like we Rosa Parks get what? She gets like one paragraph. Harriet Tubman gets another paragraph. So a Flo- Florence Kennedy or Margaret Sloan is not going to even get a sentence in a history book. And I learned a lot about Shirley Chisholm. Like I knew about her, but I learned a lot from this show. So I hope that they're taking away that they're taking away education, like a history lesson that's being brought to them in a very... Um, in a, in a beautiful way. It's it, the story, the producers, Coco Francini, Stacey Cher, Kate, Micah and Davi, they took good care of the story. And you don't see that a lot, especially with, with historical pieces and pieces based on, you know, historical events that have happened. And so I think they took very good care of how they told the story. So it, what I love is that you get a history lesson, but you get it uh, you receive it in a beautiful way by amazing performances. But I also, I think the biggest thing I want people to take away is that they go on Google just like you did and mm-hmm. research these women and research these people of that time to really see all of the things they did and the span of their accomplishments because it's vast, it's huge. And these women deserve to have shine. You know, they deserve to be seen and known. So it's an honor to even bring Margaret to the screen for the first time. And I would love to, to, stretch out her story and do something else on her because she her story is so specific and it's so interesting and unique and there's more to it of course but yeah i loved what you said in one of the interviews you gave that you that you thought and excuse me if i'm quoting you wrong but i think what i read is that you said margaret is the face of intersectionality on the show she is she is she's can you expand on that a little bit so it's it's Margaret was a black woman lesbian and something that is so like amazing to me about her, like so unique is that she was all of those things and she lived out all of those things very loudly. Her blackness wasn't louder than her womanness. Her womanness wasn't louder than her sexuality. They were all equal. That was the package you received from her. And she was not going to sacrifice parts of her to fit any space. And you see in some of the scenes that when she's in these white woman spaces, her blackness is still there. And she's not going to shy away from, hey, I am not white. I am black. 
here is my story and you have to accept the fullness of me. When she was in the black woman spaces who in, the, in those spaces that did not, um, that wanted her to put her sexuality on the back burner to fit their agenda for their freedom and their equality and their space um, in, in politics, she, she did not do that. It was like, no, I am all of these things. And in like the civil rights spaces, I know she felt unseen sometimes because of her black womanness. Because the civil rights, uh, you know, movement was more about the black man's agenda and not the black woman's agenda. So yeah. all of these different spaces that she's navigating and she is all these three different things in one and she never sacrificed parts of herself. So when I say she's the face of intersection, intersectionality is that she represented so many different movements, so many different people in, in, in just one body. And she didn't shy away from any of those things. And that's what I loved about her because imagine being a black woman and a lesbian who's also a mother in 2020. It's still problems. These, mm. Those women still face kind of uh, um, discrimination and, and being treated certain, in certain ways and not being seen as equal and not being seen as worthy to be, uh, to be the spokeswoman of, of certain companies and brands and movements. And this woman was doing that fiercely in 1970. Yeah. Well, you did her justice with your performance. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to ask you about Kate Blanchett. Since yes. This is a Kate Blanchett podcast. So you don't have any scenes with her, I don't think. Mm-hmm. But tell me about your, if you've had any interactions with her. Yes. So I remember being on set one time just for a fitting. I just remember seeing her in her Phyllis wig and I was like, oh my gosh, she looks just like her. It was unreal. And she's a monster. She's a beast. Like, her performance in the show is insane. Um, mm-hmm. And I wish I got to see some of her uh, scenes. But I remember for the table read for episode four, I was just sitting there waiting for everyone to come in. And I was like so nervous. And I was like, oh my God, like Sarah, Kate, uh, Tracy Ullman, Uzo, they're all going to be in this room in like five minutes. What am I going to do? And Kate comes in and I'm like about to speak. And she's like, hi, I'm Kate. And I just wanted to be like, I know exactly who you are. She's so sweet. Very nice. And she um, was the pilot of this show. And, um, you know, we all got gifts from her as well as the producers. And so I didn't, you know, I wasn't able to really work, work with her, but I felt her energy and she really created a beautiful atmosphere on that set. So that's my one little Kate story. <laughs> but it well, was hopefully you'll have many more. Yes, 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 yes. Definitely. So you, you mentioned that this is your first TV show that you got casting. So tell our listeners a little bit about your career. I think I, 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 from what information I could find about you is that you were a recent drama school graduate. Yes. So uh, born and raised in Richmond, Virginia, uh, around the time I was always growing up, always in like uh, Black History Month performances, or I was in band or I praise dance in church. And then around high school, there was a program called the Next Stage Theater Company. And I remember I was going to, my best friend's mother was taking me and my best friend to go see the show. And I told her, hey, can you put in a good word with the director? Because I would love to do this next year. And she took us backstage before the show and said, hey, you know, this is Bria. She wants to act. She would love to be a part of this program next year. And the director looked at me and said, well, would you like to go on stage tonight? Because one of my actors have, you know, called in sick and I just need someone to read these lines. So I was like, oh, sure. And she handed me the costume, also a chunky girl growing up, and it fit perfectly. And so I, I went to go see a show that I was actually in. And had no idea what I was doing, but I did it. And so after that, I started doing those programs after school. And then from there, went to Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia, majored in drama for four years. One of my professors, Professor uh, Bolden, he said, look, if you want longevity in this career, you need to go to grad school. Because Spelman is a liberal arts school. And when it comes to the, our BA drama program, they only give us like three classes in acting. So I went off to, I graduated like May 2015 went off all the way to the West Coast of Seattle, Washington to go train for three years at the University of Washington Mm -hmm. to get my master's. And I did that. And that was an amazing, chaotic, beautiful roller coaster of an experience that really helped me become a better person. I learned a lot about myself and also at the same time became a better uh, artist and then graduated in 2018. So just two years ago, April, 2018. And then, um, that uh, met my reps, got an agent, got a, a manager that same month. 
And I was back and forth flying. I wanted to move to New York. I wanted to be, I wanted to go back to the East Coast. And I felt like, oh, you know, real actors go to New York. (laughs) Right. And then LA was like, come here. We like you. Come here. And so I was like, okay. So I was flying back and forth uh, to LA between LA and Seattle in 2018. And I was a part of the NBC Diversity Showcase. And that helped get my name out a little bit in the um, in the industry. And then I started auditioning. And then funny thing is April 2019 is when I booked Mrs. America a year out from when I graduated from grad school. And then I'm here now. And then a year and then a year later from that, I'm on the show, you know, like the show premieres. So it's yeah. really crazy. Like, yeah. I think the show premiered April 15th. I graduated from Seattle University of Washington, like April 15th, 16th of 2018. April is your month. <laughs> April's my month. Oh my God, I didn't think about that. <laughs> so yeah, there's my journey in a very fast, concise way. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I think this show will open a lot of doors for you because I think anybody I, who sees you as Margaret Sloan wants to see more. I know yeah. I do. Thank you. So that is so sweet. Cause that's all that was like, you know, I wanted to bring justice to her in the short moments that I had. And I am, I am proud of the work. You know, it's hard to watch yourself. You want to critique everything, but at the end of the day, I was like, wow, her, I do feel like her story was told and you, everyone, the viewers will understand fully what, um, who Margaret was in the short moments you have with her. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you one last question. So mm-hmm. I do this podcast in admiration of Kate Blanchett. She is the I know, actor. And one day she will be on this podcast. <laughs> I'm going to see it for you. She's the actor who, like, you know, as somebody who loves movies, um, she's the actor who sustains my soul. So I want to know about you. Who is an actor who gives you that, you're excited to see, who gives you that soul sustenance? Oh, that's a hard question. Who is an actor that sustains my soul? That is deep. Um, wow. Mm. Somebody you just love to watch all the time. Mm. Merle Streep. Merle Streep. Um, but another actress I have to give praise to is Ajane Ellis, who just okay. played Dr. Maddie Moss Clark. Um, she's been in the game for years. But every time I watch Merle and Ajene, I'm always like, she about to eat. And, and it's just, and I, I'm always rewinding, like, do y'all see that? Do you, talking to myself, because it's just me in my room watching. I'm just like, do y'all get what just happened? Look at her. Yes. You know, those are people <laughs> who I think sustain myself, but I have a, a list. Yeah. Yeah, I love Meryl. I love Ajene. I think they're both great. So, yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, Bria, for coming on Sundays with Skate. Thank you so much. Thank you for your patience. I'm glad we could do this. And this was a great interview. Great questions. Thank you so much. I think this is the start of a brilliant career for you. I hope to see more and more of you. Yes, from your mouth to God's ears. And that's our show this week. My thanks to Bria and to Andy. You may find me on Twitter at M-E underscore says and follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Sundays with Skate. All our previous episodes of the show are available at sundayswithkate.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, thank you for listening.